Uh, I'd like to welcome uh, you to the SRN Assembly podcast series. My name is Brad Edwards, and today I have the opportunity to speak with Dr. David White on the topic of personalised medicine for the treatment of obstructive sleep apnea. Dr. White is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and has worked on the pathophysiology of obstructive sleep apnea for most of his life. It's a pleasure to have you here, David, today, and thanks for talking to us. I might kick you off with the first. Thank you. Um, well, the first thing I wanted to ask you is what are the current treatments that we have for OSA that are most commonly prescribed, and what are the main challenges you think um, uh, that are faced by both clinicians and patients with these in treatments? Okay, clearly that the first-line therapy of most patients is made on CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure. And the hurdle there is also pretty obvious in, in that a lot of people simply will not wear a CPAP mask with the pressure involved uh, every night for the rest of their lives. And current estimates are that only about 50% of people placed on CPAP at any one time will end up using it in the long run. So that's obviously a serious problem. The second most common uh product is what we call mandibular advancing devices, which basically pull the mandible forward. Um, and these are actually pretty effective. And, and in some of the clinical trials that have compared them to CPAP, they've actually done well. They don't work quite as well, but the uh, utilization is better and results tend to be a little bit better. The hurdles here are not as obvious as with CPAP because it doesn't seem to be a major compliance issue. The efficacy is pretty good. They don't work for everybody, but they make most people better and a lot of people completely well. And it seems to be probably more of a delivery problem, meaning that getting patients to the dentist, getting reimbursement set up and things like that tends to be more the problem than the actual efficacy of the devices, in my opinion. Finally, there are surgical procedures basically designed to increase the size of the airway and reduce collapsibility. And these are done in relatively few people. They're not particularly successful in most patients. They're relatively painful, and most people elect simply to not do them. Now, there's some new therapies out there like uh, hypoglossal nerve stimulation, like this Winks negative pressure therapy in the mouth that are sort of coming on the scene, and how they'll do and how long they'll last, I don't think we know right now, but the main three of those that I mentioned. Yeah, fantastic. Do you, do you think that the clinicians out there, like yourself as well, uh, do, you, do you think we're actually personalizing therapy with these existing treatments to the patient's needs at the moment? No, we're definitely not. I mean, I think everybody is put on CPAP in the first place. I mean, I think that's first-line therapy, and most everybody is directed that way. If they refuse for whatever reason, they can go to the other therapies. And the only personalization, I think, in terms of like the MAD devices is, is that patients with severe sleep apnea and patients with very high BMIs probably get swayed away from that direction because they're probably not quite as effective in that group. The surgeons, on the other hand, do phenotype a bit. At least they tr they're trying these days to determine site of collapse. And they do this with this dice, this drug-induced sleep endoscopy, and they'll look in the airway during that and try to determine the site of collapse. Now, they're not looking at any of the other physiologic traits. They're just looking at site of collapse. They're going to measure collapsibility, just where are you collapsing, and then they're trying to go after it with some, you know, with a variety of different procedures or combinations of procedures. So, in general, elephant phenotyping is done very much in all other than a little bit in the surgical world. And I think basically we're just putting everybody on a cascade of therapies. Um, and we're not doing as well as we should.
Yeah, okay. I mean, as, as you highlighted there in, in your answer to this question in the previous question, a major limitation to these parent treatments, and especially for those people that are intolerant of CPAP, is that our alternative uh, treatment options like the surgery or the mandibular advancement devices aren't always effective in, um, in you know, select people. And I just uh, wanted to invite you to, to speculate as to why you think this might be the case. Like, why, that, why is MAD and surgery not for everybody? Well, I mean, you know, MADS, you're pulling your jaw forward. It advances the tongue. It probably does a little bit to the palate. It does, it may do a little bit to the lateral walls. But in some people, the anatomy is going to be sufficiently bad that advancing the mandible a little bit is just simply not going to be enough to overcome the other problems. I mean, they can, they can have, the anatomy can be sufficiently bad or other traits, which I think we'll talk about in a few minutes, may be sufficiently abnormal that a small correction in the anatomical piece is not enough to fix the entire problem. Surgeries, I mean, again, surgeries you know, can repair the anatomy only a certain amount and they have very little if any effect on the other traits that are important in the development of sleep apnea. So it's not at all surprising that these things don't work in everybody. Just like it's not surprising that CPAP does work in everybody. You can always put enough pressure in somebody's airway to open it. But these other procedures have a limited effect on the anatomy and if you do that, other traits can come into play. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, that's what I was just getting at. So maybe that's a good segue to sort of ask you if you wouldn't mind giving us, I guess, an overview of these these multiple causes of OSA with these various traits. Now we've thought for a number of years that there are four fundamental traits that cause people to develop sleep apnea. The first one is certainly the anatomy. You have to have some anatomical predisposition to develop sleep apnea. And by that I mean that if you go to sleep and you relax your upper airway muscles and the upper airway remains widely open, patent, meaning you've got a really nice large airway, you're not going to develop obstructive sleep apnea. The other traits are not enough to cause that. You may get central apnea, but you will not get obstructive. But that being said, there's a huge variability in the severity of the anatomical uh, compromise. Some people have a very minimal one yet develop sleep apnea. Other people have pretty bad anatomy and do not develop sleep apnea. And that depends on the other traits. And the, the second trait is what we call the upper airway response or the ability of the upper airway muscles to compensate for anatomical deficiencies. If you've got an anatomical problem, when you're awake, the muscles compensate for this beautifully. And during sleep, in many people, they have the ability to do that as well. However, this is variable. Some people, the muscles don't respond particularly well to the stimuli that activate them, and others, they respond quite well. So if you've got an anatomical deficiency and your muscles work great, you can frequently overcome it and not have apnea. If your muscles don't work that great, you, can't, you may well have apnea despite a relatively minor anatomical abnormality. The third trait is what we call the arousal uh, response, or meaning the arousal threshold to a respiratory stimulus, how much respiratory stimulation, the respiratory effort does it take to wake you up. And this is important because you've got an anatomical problem and the muscles can respond, they don't respond quickly, they require a certain amount of time to respond as CO2 builds up in the system and as the upper airway negative pressure increases. And as a result, you have to be able to stay asleep long enough for the recruitment of the muscles. And some people can do this and some people can't. Therefore, a low arousal threshold can predispose people to cycling arousals and uh, cycling apnea as an appropriate. Finally, the fourth one is what we call loop gain, which is an engineering term for the, basically for the gain of the system controlled by feedback loops. 
And so it's basically a metric of ventilatory control instability. And people that have unstable ventilatory control and a relatively minor anatomical abnormality may have cycling respiration. At the nadir of cycling respiration, the muscle activity goes down and the airway can shut. So the traits are really your upper airway anatomy or collapsibility, the ability of muscles to respond to sleep, your ability to stay asleep while these muscles do respond, and finally your ventilatory control instability. Do you think uh, there's been some mention in the literature also of, uh, of like, um, uh, lung volume and other other factors that are thought to play a role as well? Do you, do you take these into your consideration as well when you're thinking about the multiple causes of sleep apnea? I know there are other traits that we're not including in, in these primary four. Whether they're fundamentally important and very substantially one person to the next, I don't know. I think falling lung volume makes the upper airway more collapsible. It may be incorporated to some extent into your anatomical uh, determination. The same thing applies to sort of uh, resort, reabsorption of fluid at night that then gets in the jack and may make the upper airway more collapsible. I think they're all playing around with the collapsibility issue. Whether they're independent traits or a part of that trait is not really clear at this time. Yeah, fair enough. Um, what techniques do we have that are currently available to measure these physiological causes of sleep apnea? I know that your group has been uh, primarily working in this area, so I was wondering if you'd give us an overview of the, the techniques that are available um, to measure these particular traits. I mean, they're clearly measurable, and it's not terribly hard, but it, it involves uh, somebody who knows what they're doing, basically staying up all night, as you know very well, Brad. Um, we, we, all the traits can be determined by simply manipulating the pressure in the airway, and I'm not going to go into exactly how you do it, but by challenging the airway in a number of different ways, slowly, quickly, over, over relatively long periods of time and whatnot, you can determine both the collapsibility, the ability of the airway to respond to a challenge, you can determine the arousal threshold, and you can measure the loop gain. So with a device that will basically go between about 20 centimeters of water positive and about 10 centimeters of water negative pressure in virtually everybody, you can determine these traits. That does not make this clinically available, though. This is only done in laboratories that know what they're doing and have even substantial experience with it to take somebody manipulating the pressures and following what's going on. Now, our lab, as you all know, has been working on trying to determine if there are other ways or simpler ways or less invasive ways to make these determinations. And we're making some progress. You back published a paper recently showing that you can predict a low arousal threshold by commonly measured metrics off of sleep study, things like the apnea potency index, the nadir oxygen saturation, the relationship of apnea to hypopnea. You can say this person has a low arousal threshold. Uh, Scotty Sands published a paper using a methodology to determine loop gain that, they, um, that basically in, in a, somebody with cycling respiration during a routine PSG, you can make this determination. Now, this program has not, to my knowledge, been loaded into any of the commercial CPAP uh, data acquisition systems such that people can actually do this at this time, but that's theoretically possible. Um, the anatomical metrics and the upper airway response metric, have, nobody has come up with at this time a straightforward, easy way to measure them off a simplified or, or a routine type test. That does not mean that will not happen. Our, our lab's working on it as are others to try to determine how to do this. My guess is in the not too distant future, there will be um, 
way to determine all of the of the traits off either a PSG or with simple maneuvers. Um, but right now, I do not think anybody is routinely trying to determine these traits with the goal in mind of individualizing care. Yeah, what do you think of uh, maybe a bit more simplified awake predictors or tests that might be usable to determine these traits? So something like um, chemo reflex testing or you mentioned earlier the drug-induced um, sleep endoscopy to, to look at cytotap collapse, sorry, and, um, you know, kept to look at maybe even get at that anatomy piece. Do you think any of those sorts of tests, I don't think the studies have been done to show that they're good predictors of the physiological traits at the moment, but do you think there's a there's scope for any of those particular tests or maybe other tests that might be useful in coming up with um, predictors of these uh, physiological traits? Um, my guess would be the chemoreflex testing during wakefulness will probably give you a reasonable handle on leukase. With that, it's not been done. I know there's a study going on in Australia as part of the CRC where you're going to look at that. My guess is that they, that'll work reasonably well. Whether that'll be an easy test, it could be done in a clinical laboratory, time will tell. Um, DICE, in my mind, is far from an awake test. <laughs> DICE is, you know, you're basically on a propofol anesthesia. The United States DICE test will probably cost $3,000. So I don't think that's going to get anywhere in terms of helping us simply design anatomy. In terms of uh, measures of anatomy, like cephalometrics or MRIs or CT scans and things like that, they've never, in my mind, turned out to be great predictors of upper airway anatomy of sleep. I mean, I just don't think they give us the same information that you can get out of, out of a P-crit determination or our metric D sub zero that's used to, to measure um, anatomy. So I think we're going to be stuck with the concept that some measurements are going to need to be done during sleep, but I think those measurements are doable and will get easier with time. Yeah, fair enough. Um, what do you think really is, is the major roadblock um, stopping us from phenotyping patients in the clinic right now. You certainly mentioned some techniques that are, that are available and can be used on clinically available data, um, but we, as you mentioned, uh, we're not particularly using this in the clinic right now. So what are the major roadblocks you think that we face? Well, the biggest one that we just talked about is that people can't measure these things. And the only easy one is, is your measure of, a, of low arousal threshold. People could probably do that and come up with that when the metric for lupiate is again, although doable is not out there yet and the others aren't available at all. So I think that's step number one. Step number two is that we need clinical trials that basically show if you do these interventions, for instance, if you show a, a low arousal threshold and I put somebody on a hypnotic, what's the probability it's going to be successful? And will it be successful for a longer period of time than a one-night study, okay? Will that patient be able to take that medication for months, years, and use that as their method for sleep apnea therapy? And I don't think we know that yet. And that applies to whether you're manipulating loop gain with acetazolamide or oxygen or whether you're, you know, manipulating arousal threshold, or you're doing combinations where you're doing some anatomical manipulation in combination with the drugs. So two things need to happen before I think this get, will get into common practice. One, or three things I'm going to say. One, we got to get better, easier metrics or easier ways to measure these, these metrics. Number two, we need to understand 
exactly how effective our various interventions are in terms of manipulating these traits. And I think that, that data is being accumulated right now. And then number three, I think we're going to need longer-term trials of placing people on these interventions based on the, you know, based on the phenotyping and see how they do. Because we're talking about, you know, totally non-standard ways of treating sleep apnea. We're not talking about phenotyping somebody and, and putting them on a, uh, on a CPAP. It wouldn't, that would be meaningless. So I think we'll see that we're talking about putting on drugs, oxygen, or combination of devices and drugs and oxygen. And so these are novel approaches, and so we're going to need more data, I think, before people are going to be comfortable doing that. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, you kind of answered my next question in answering that question, but, uh, and this is particularly probably a particularly challenging question to, to ask, but it sounds like, first of all, it sounds like we're totally not there right at the moment with this personalised medicine for obstructive sleep apnea, but it's within reach. Would, would that, would you say that, would you agree with that? I would. I mean, I think the, the biology's there, I think the concepts are there, I think the methods to make the measurements are there. I think we have ways to manipulate some of the traits very well. Anatomy we're fairly good at with, you know, with meds and surgery and things like that. We're really good at manipulating loop gain. We're pretty average at manipulating arousal threshold. The drugs don't do it dramatically. And we're nowhere in terms of manipulating the muscles. And so we're gonna, that's something we need to, you know, we're gonna need a good bit of work. So it's, we're getting there. I think if people are thinking about it and if we just keep pushing, um, hopefully we'll have ways to measure it and methods to manipulate the traits uh, in the not-too-distant future. Great. Well, uh, that's all the questions I have for you, and I'd like to thank you so much for your time and sharing your thoughts with us and the, um, the ATS uh, SRN community. Thanks very much, David. My pleasure, Brian.